This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. We end up with an intoxicating, brain-melting yarn that, for all its pleasures, has ideas a little above its station. It's not Kafka. Then again, it doesn't need to be. That's Donald Clark of the Irish Times. We'll be reviewing Blade Runner 2049. As well as Battle of the Sexes. Here's one other quote i got to read you. Christopher Orr from The Atlantic. From the grayed-out countrysides over which the sky has closed like a lid to the drizzly neon decadence of Los Angeles to the Ozymandian wreckage of Las Vegas, the film is a visual splendor of the first order. So Blade Runner 2049 we'll talk about, along with Battle of the Sexes, and Earth One Amazing Day, which is a G-rated movie. Don't get enough of those these days. Uh, all about nature and the wonderful world we live in. Narrated by Robert Redford. Speaking of Robert Redford, Gina had tweeted us at Cinephile saying she wants an actor's showcase in The Golden Boy. So you got it, Gina. We'll break down Redford's best movies of his career. Plus, my guy Martin Scorsese penning an article in The Hollywood Reporter in which he praises mother, criticizes Rotten Tomatoes and CinemaScore. I'll tell you how my boy, my idol, my guy, where he's dead wrong. And where I somewhat agree with him. Our special guest this time in Cinephile, Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. Scott has a terrific podcast. I encourage all of you to listen to. His writing is excellent in The Hollywood Reporter, which I subscribe to. Thanks to Kathy Leogran, who hooked me up with a subscription after my visit to Lemoyne. And Scott's going to tell us all about this Harvey Weinstein saga, which has just engulfed the world of film. And it just keeps getting worse and worse, which is horrifying to think about. We'll also touch on the Oscar race and maybe some stories from what it's like for Scott in his uh, journeys as someone call it, covering entertainment. Speaking of somebody who covers entertainment, Ben Lines and I spoke. He's well aware of this running bit now on Cinephile that he has not given his top ten movies of the century. He told me to tell Dan he's got six of the movies so far, but he's now reluctant to divulge. He wants to see how long we can sh- just string this thing out. Tell him I need the list before the Knicks win their first game. <laughs> he is recovering about the Mellow News, but he's, it took him hard. He, he tweeted immediately after Mellow was traded, just don't at me, don't call me, don't text me. I need to take a long walk. Uh, so he's he's recovering. He and Dan, of course, uh, big Carmelo Anthony fans. Speaking of being fans, you heard in that open there, the uh, last drop there of Brockmar. How about this? If only I could multiply myself. I got a text from my agent last Friday. What are you doing next Wednesday? Today, by the way, we're taping it on a Wednesday. And I said, uh, you know, usual, a little, little column A, a little column B, a little baseball tonight, a little uh, podcast. He's like, all right, got a potential job for you. I'll check back. I'm like, all right, may not work. And I was like, well, you want to just tell me what it is? He's like, Brockmire, season two filming in Atlanta. I'm like, oh, man, come on. He's like, all right, let me see what I can do, blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't know what the latest is. I think that they needed me for a couple of days. I asked Kurt when he did his cameo season one. He goes, yeah, I flew down in the morning. I was there overnight. So maybe they were like, listen. Because I was like, I can fly down, first flight in the morning. 
I can be back by like 8 p.m., do the show at night, but then I'm like, eh. So it's in flux right now, but this is this is what's holding me back as an actor is the fact I got this ESPN job holding me back. Why don't you just take the day off? Just just tell my baseball tonight people, hey, I know it's the playoffs. Strasburg's Dude, the pitch Tell game Iger. Go higher. <laughs> go up the chain. He emails me like four times a year, this Iger guy. Shoot him a note. Say, hey, Bobby Iggs, yeah. I got a, I got a TV show I got to shoot. I'm, I'm ready for my close-up. Yeah. Okay? yeah. <laughs> there you go. I asked my agent, I said, what would the role be? I'm assuming I'm playing myself because I'd like to play. I mean, a baseball player. I'd like to play the second baseman straight from Morocco. I hit a home run. Brockmeyer says, welcome to Tangier. I mean, how, how tremendous would that be? Because you know, I, I think you'd be playing yourself. So let's hope, fingers crossed. Hank, if you're listening, let's make it happen, man. I just I just want to be on set. I want to be in Brockmeyer. Hopefully that'll happen. Thanks to all those who listened to the podcast last time out. I honestly thought it was one of our best ones, which is why I was confounded as to why it was not on the Apple podcast right away. I got a lot of tweets about that, people asking. It's there now. Maybe Dan can explain why it was not showing up for people immediately. So it didn't show up for the first week. We have an exclusive rights deal with the TuneIn app. So when as soon as I post the podcast, it goes right to TuneIn exclusively for a week. I don't know what sum of money they are paying our company. We are seeing zero sense of it for the record. (laughs) And one week later, it then starts showing up on Apple Podcasts and in the ESPN app. You can still access it that way. Yeah. It just it won't show up in your feed. Okay, that's good to know because a lot of people were tweeting me about that. So exactly what Dan just said. When I tweet it, you click on the link, it's there. Or use this wonderful TuneIn app. You can find it out there. Uh, but as far as showing up, Richard Lewis showed up a week after we had taped it. But if you haven't listened to it, he was hysterical. Kirby enthusiasm off to a blistering start so far. Dan, have you watched the first two episodes? I have. I'm all caught up. How about the, I mean, my favorite episode, spoiler alert, was Palestinian Chicken. I just love the fact they've now brought it back. We have another horrifying... A recurring character, if you will. <laughs> I don't know any Muslims. They don't work in show business. I don't run into them at the deli. Maybe I could go to a mosque, talk to them there. <laughs> I, I'm a, I mean, uh, there's. A, I don't want to spoil it. Just go watch Kirby Enthusiasm. The scene with Richard Lewis, by the way, the first time him and Larry. Uh, come over here. No, you come over here. No, you come over here. That whole bit back and forth, incredible. I don't live in a Cuban dance hall. Kirby Enthusiasm is the best. Make sure you listen to Richard Lewis. As always, you can uh, look up Cinephile on iTunes and the um, ESPN app. But, of course, on iTunes, please give us a rating. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. The rating there at a five stars. Leave us a review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and we'll go from there. We appreciate it. Before we get to a review of Blade Runner 2049, the sequel long in the making, we like to give back here, so why not? We've got some shirts. It's a fall movie extravaganza. Dan's dialed up another quiz. Your chance to win Cinephile T-shirts. As long as you answer these questions correct and tweet us at Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. Dan, what do we got? How many shirts do you think? Like five, seven? What do you? What it was seven? Seven. First seven correct answers to these six questions. There is a bonus question involved. First seven. Okay, so I've recently been watching a lot of Jeopardy. There's a great contestant going in, eleven-time champion Austin Rogers is his name. So there's kind of a, I wrote them as if they were Jeopardy clues, some of them, so to speak. Love it. I could see okay. you being a big Jeopardy guy. And Huge, I saw you, yeah. And I saw you tweeting about him saying, hey, get on this, get to watch this guy. Question one. It's handled. The wife of this recent guest wears the white hat on network television. Do you know the answer? Say it one more time. It's handled. The wife of this recent guest wears the white hat on network television. I don't know the answer to this, actually. Okay, well, you did not uh, You did not mention the wife 
in your interview with this person, okay. that should have narrowed it down oh, for you. Oh, I got you. Okay, okay, okay. Because okay. I told you the next day, I didn't even know it. But oh yeah, uh, no, yeah. Okay, no, I got you. I got you. I got you. Question two: The only actor spotlight in which a non-movie role made the top five was for this actor, who hasn't exactly been rising since winning an Oscar. I like that. Good wordplay there. I like like this Jeopardy theme here. Rising. I got Uh, it. This one's just kind of straightforward. Question three. Adnan recently described Leonardo DiCaprio's Chaplin-esque performance in a scene in this movie. Very good. My brother sent me the gif from from that movie, so that'll help. Yep. Question four. In an effort to disprove the, quote, Bob Costas of Canada... (laughs) <laughs> Adnan went on the record and said that this project is the worst that Martin Scorsese has ever done. Bonus points if you can name the Sports Center anchor who disagreed. Oh yeah, that's very good. Yes, that's you, your bonus question. Yeah, I like you can, the bonus question. You can sneak question. that in. Great, you don't yeah, have to. Sure. Question five. Although my movie knowledge is microscopic compared to Adnan's, we almost had to go to the nuclear option. Me hosting because Adnan was suffering from a severe case of strep throat. Which film did I plan on reviewing and then eventually review in a subsequent episode? Very good. Excellent. And finally, the recently deceased actor Frank Vincent, who was in Raging Bull, Goodfellas, and Casino, got his start in acting thanks to his friendship with Joe Pesci. In fact, they were in a band together. What was the name of the band? (laughs) That should be the bonus question. Like, if you get that right, you get 10 T-shirts, buddy. You did mention it in the yeah. podcast. Right. Somebody can probably do a Google search, but you're right. Hopefully people heard of the podcast. That's an excellent quiz. Once again, Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, ESPN. I mentioned LeMoyne briefly there. Hopefully we're going to make a return visit. Kathy Leagrand working feverishly to get me up there in November. Once again, Dino Barbecue with the stands. This time I get to meet his brother Mike. Maybe his wife as well. Let's, let's see if we can make this thing happen. But thanks to Julie Grossman, Phil Novak. Of course, they're part of the film department at LeMoyne. And so I hopefully I get to see them soon. I appreciate the fact they're listening to this. So maybe we'll do another road trip here for Cinephile. And I will bring some shirts as well, of course, up to, uh, to New York State. Blade Runner 2049, a long sequel in the making. I'll give my review first, and then I'll talk about what everyone seems to be talking about, which is why the box office was disappointing. First and foremost, do you need to see the original Blade Runner? No, you don't. Have I seen it? Yes. What do I think of it? I think it's all right. I, I think it's one of those movies that does not hold the test of time. I think it was really important for its time. Uh, 1982, Ridley Scott, what he was doing was different, very cerebral uh, science fiction story. But I don't think if, uh, you know, Dan pops it up in his DVD player, he's going to be blown away by it. But if you want to check it out, go ahead, check it out. I do not think it's a prerequisite for seeing Denis Villeneuve's sequel. Uh, in fact, the first page is a little bit of a scrawl explaining what a Blade Runner is, and, and away we go. So... The basic of it is that now the story has you know gone forward 30 years. We're now in 2049. Ryan Gosling, you'll find out his uh, backstory, but he's now uh, on a mission, and eventually he's trying to find Deckard. Of course, Deckard was the, the famous character played by Harrison Ford, who's back again. And I, I while watching this film, I thought about what my dear friends, Randall Thorne. Shout out to Randall, who is listening, by the way. He's an accomplished director. He's actually in Paris doing his show, which is unbelievable. I'm so proud of him. But RT and I were talking about um, Eyes Wide Shut and my friend Mike Kiss as well. Mike's also a huge star, by the way. Terrific writer. He's very, very fun. One of the funniest people I know. We were talking about Eyes Wide Shut, and we said it's not that the movie's so long. You know when someone watches a long movie, you guys, I could have cut out 20 minutes. But it's just if you shortened all the scenes by 10 seconds, then that would actually be the right way to watch it. So Eyes Wide Shut 
is a long movie, but it's not like that scene's extraneous or that superfluous. You just go, everything just feels long because Kubrick has such a long takes and everything's just drawn out. So similarly, I had that feeling watching Blade Runner 2049. It's two hours and 45 minutes. Like, it's a long movie, and I think it's too long. But I don't necessarily feel like that subplot wasn't necessary or the deliberate style that Villeneuve is going for is wrong. I, th- I think I-, I completely understand what he's doing. He wants it to be entrancing and spellbinding and, and haunting. And-, and a movie with quicker cuts and faster editing wouldn't have worked. So I-, I totally appreciate he's putting you in this mood, in this zone, which is so atmospheric. But I think he could have shortened the scenes by 10 seconds and just kind of kept the pace up a little bit. Now, having said that... I, I appreciate the fact he was saying, listen, I'm not going to go to what maybe modern-day audiences are used to in terms of a science fiction movie. There's not a ton of action in this movie. And the first hour, you're watching it unfold, and you're understanding the backstory, and it's very melodic. They said, okay, well, when are we going to some chase sequences? Like, when are the bad guys going to come out? We'll get some tasers. Like, whatever. Let's go. And you never really get that. So I, I thought it was really – it's impressive that they're trying to be atypical in terms of some are blockbusters, which is surprising until you know Villeneuve's work. Because he did an arrival, which my buddy Dan is a big fan of, and that was a very atypical commercial blockbuster. It had A-list stars, but it wasn't an alien movie the way you'd expect. There's no big chase sequence. There's no big payoff. It's very cerebral. So, actually, when you watch Blade Runner 2049, if you didn't know Villeneuve directed it, you'd say, well, I can kind of see similarities with arrival in terms of tone and temperament. So I don't think the story has a huge payoff. I think maybe that's deliberate. Maybe there's going to be another movie to this. Maybe there's a sequel planned. Uh, I don't think it's unsatisfying. I just think that it isn't. It, it, it confounds audience expectations, which may be why the film didn't do as well as they were hoping box office wise. They were hoping for in the 45 to $55 million range for the opening of this movie. Now, it was still the highest opening ever for Ryan Gosling, for him as a star of the film, highest opening ever for a Villeneuve film. He also did Prisoners. But $32.8 million was the opening box office. It's about 10 to $20 million less than what the audiences thought. And it goes back to the thought, the original Blade Runner was not Star Wars. Like, it it itself was a cult sci-fi film embraced by critics. And this is another film with glowing reviews, 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's not like they're making The Last Jedi and you're expecting billions. It's, It's a movie that was itself a cult hit, which has now been revived. So for mass audiences, maybe they're not going to be that into it. And as I said, in terms of its style... It's not meant to be a crowd pleaser. So it actually shouldn't be surprising that the film didn't reach those expectations. Maybe the expectations should have been off. But there seems to be a lot of hand-wringing now going, hey, why wasn't Blade Runner better received? And I, I mean, listen, it still made $33 million. I do think it's going to get nominations in the technical categories. It still should be deemed a success. Speaking of those nominations, there's one star of this film that it has to be discussed in great detail. He is one of the best ever in terms of being a craftsman. Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that didn't? Dan and I himself have talked about this. You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves over Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction losing to Forrest Gump, etc. But I often think about who's somebody that's never won that should have won. And again, we often focus on actors. Prior to Leo winning for The Revenant, how has DiCaprio never won an Oscar, etc.? The greatest miscarriage of justice ever is, of course, the fact Alfred Hitchcock never won a competitive Oscar. He's widely considered to be the greatest director of all time, certainly the most influential, yet he did not win Best Director. Instead, he won an honorary Oscar, lifetime achievement late in his career. The biggest one right now, though, for me is Roger Deakins. Who's Roger Deakins? He is a genius. He is a cinematographer who is 68 years old, who has never won, even though he's been nominated countless times. And this film might be his best work, which is really saying something when I list off some of these movies he's done. According to GoldDerby.com, which is where I'm a part of with the other Oscar experts, 
we currently have in the category of cinematography Deacons as a 27 to 10 favorite to win, like overwhelming favorite. That's how beautifully shot this movie is. There, there are scenes that literally take your breath away. You'll say, wow. And I don't know how much of this was green screen. So think about how hard this was to be as a cinematographer. Like, it's one thing, Dunkirk looks beautiful, but Nolan eschews green screen. So he has a lot of, you know, the replica modern airplanes, et cetera. Like, Deacons does this in, in a way that I just I don't even know how to describe. Here are some of the movies he's done. And think about the fact he hasn't won an Oscar for any of these movies. No Country for Old Men, The Shawshank Redemption, Prisoners, Fargo, which is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen, the way he shoots snow, The Man Who Wasn't There, which is gorgeous black and white, Barton Fink, Big Lebowski, A Beautiful Mind, Dead Man Walking, Doubt, Revolutionary Road, Homicide, The Hurricane, Courage Under Fire, a couple movies with Denzel, and Scorsese's Kundun, which is just a gorgeous-looking film, even though I think the narrative is a little empty. We'll talk about it sometime in Scorsese's stories. This guy's never won an Oscar. Like, are you kidding me? So if you like Roger Deakins' work, or if you like cinematography, if you like a beautiful film, just go see Blade Runner 24 to enjoy the work of Deakins. The other part of this, my wife and I recently saw Hamilton for our 10-year anniversary, and immediately I bought the soundtrack afterwards. I know that's not on Vogue right now to buy soundtracks, but if somebody was selling the soundtrack to Blade Runner 2049 in the theater immediately after the showing, I would have pulled it up 20 bucks. And I had to Google afterwards. I said, all right, let's see who did it. Hans Zimmer. Of course, Hans Zimmer cannot lose. Dunkirk and Blade Runner 2049. The original score is very famous. Vangelis did the score for the Ridley Scott film. But this soundtrack is unbelievable. Uh, Dan used to send me emails, you know, with my SAT words. The best word to describe this soundtrack is ethereal. That is the only way to describe this film. It is just heavenly listening to this music. It is a gorgeous score. I mean, honestly, I'm going to have to go buy the CD. It's such beautiful music. So Blade Runner 2049, like I said, it's going to be challenging for some audiences. There's another word for you. It's a little esoteric, (laughs) I think, in terms of its delivery. But for the cinematography, for the score, and if you like the original, and you want to know something on the acting? Sure. Gosling's fine. Like, he's just cool. It, it, this is this is cool Ryan Gosling, all right? This is his cool look. No smiles, very handsome, rigid. You get Harrison Ford eventually. But it, it's really not a film you see for the acting. You see it for the story and the way it sets up. But if you love science fiction, I highly recommend Blade Runner 2049. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs um, for this latest film from Denis Villeneuve. The next film on the docket is Battle of the Sexes, and Ben Lyons nailed it. After we spoke, he said, have you seen it yet? I said, no, I'm going to see it. And he goes, you know, it's perfect for the Hidden Figures crowd. <laughs> and immediately I cringed. I said, oh, well, I didn't like Hidden Figures at all. I didn't think that should have been only Best Picture. And Ben goes, just trust me. And it's it's like, I don't know why they do this. They always make sports movies for sports audiences. No, excuse me. They make sports movies for audiences that are not sports fans. But in doing so, they never really attract a broad audience. It's the strangest thing. So Battle of the Sexes, they don't want to make it for tennis hardcore fans because obviously that would be a niche audience. So they try to make it this broad story. So rather than focusing on the tennis of Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, of course, we're going to get that at the end. It's just 10 minutes. You know, It's really about female empowerment. The story is really about Billie Jean King coming to terms with her sexuality, her relationship with her hairdresser coming out. She was married at the time. You know, all these challenges she's facing, you know, women's lib, et cetera. And Riggs and his issues about gambling and, and how that led to problems with his marriage. Welcome back, Elizabeth Shue. She plays his wife in the movie. I haven't seen her in a movie in years. She's great. So they don't, you know, it's not really a tennis movie, of course, right? It's tangentially about tennis, but really it's about female empowerment. And so just like Hidden Figures, it's not really about black women who are scientists. It's about, you know, overcoming obstacles. And I I thought it was a very sanitized look at race relations. Similarly, Battle of the Sexes did not do well at the box office because, again, I'm like, well, I just don't know who the audience is playing for. So back to Ben's point, 
It's very surfacey. It's very glossy. You know, Emma Stone's fine. She looks, I mean, talk about uh, doppelgangers. <laughs> it's uncanny how much she looks like Billie Jean King. Once she gets the haircut and the glasses, I mean, that's unbelievable. And Carell, for that matter, when I heard he was playing Bobby Riggs, I don't know a ton about Bobby Riggs, but I'm like, yeah, Carell probably looks just like with the sideburns and the glasses. I'm like, he's also a little paunchy. The guy's 55 in the movie. So he, he nails it. So the movie is light. It's fluffy. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Uh, like I said, it, it's really focusing on her journey which I thought it was a little much. After a while, I'm like, okay, I got it. Can we get to some actual tennis? But maybe I'm not the hardcore audience you're looking for, and I, I recognize that. But it's well acted. Um, the stuff with Corral and his gambling addiction is sometimes played for laughs, but I, I appreciate the uh, honesty with which they showed it. The actual battle of the sexes, of course, is at the end of the movie. If you don't know the story, she was 29 years old, top-ranked women's tennis player. Bobby Riggs is 55 years old, trying to get his name back. Publicity stunt. As he said, I'm going to put the show in chauvinism. And said, I want to play Billie Jean King. Yeah, he's got a lot of great one-liners like that. I mean, that's the thing. He's the villain ostensibly, but maybe because it's Corral and he's such a likable actor, you can't help but kind of root for the guy because he's just so funny. And he's in on the joke. Like, he's not actually a male chauvinist. He's not actually a pig. But I play one on TV, and that's exactly what he's doing. And even his wife says, like, like what are you doing? You're just, you're just insulting all women. No, women belong in the kitchen, not on the tennis court. All right, good. More publicity. I'm on the cover of Time. He once says to his wife, I'm on the cover of Time magazine. I never did that. I won Wimbledon. I never got that kind of fame. Great. I'm getting money for it, et cetera. Here's my major quibble, and now I rely on Dan Stancic's tennis knowledge. The last time I and maybe this is untrue. The last time I checked, when I heard about the story, the story was always that Riggs threw the match. She was 29. He was 55. She beat him, but he wasn't really on the up and up. He had gambling debts, and so he was throwing the match for gambling. The movie does not make that to be the case. The movie makes it that Riggs is trying to win, is huffing and puffing and laboring, and Bujin King beats him. And afterwards, he's upset, and Elizabeth Shue, spoiler alert, they, you know, they, they're estranged. And then she goes back to see him, and he has like a smile on his face because he's happy to see his wife. And that's it. I'm like, wait, wait. I thought he should be laughing with glee. Like, ha I pulled it off. I made... Because I thought he gambled on himself or was paying off a gambling debt to lose, which the movie completely ignores. So maybe I have ignored sports history. I asked Rasilla, and Rasilla goes, no, what you're saying sounds vaguely familiar. I do remember something about... I, I think I'm with Rasilla, and I also think you keep trying to make him be the hero. Yeah. But just think about where you started. This movie is for who? It's for the Hidden Figures crowd. Right. So even if that was the case, yeah. that's some of the truth that's going to be altered a little bit. I, I wasn't yeah. alive. When did this no, match yeah, take yeah, place? Yeah. I wasn't even alive yet. Yeah, yeah. I've just vaguely heard of the match, and I yeah. knew she won. I didn't know under which circumstances, so. but that does sound vaguely familiar. Right. If someone said but, you didn't rig throw the match, you'd go, yeah, I thought but so. But if you're expecting like him to be laughing and like, that's how the movie's going to end? Like, you're wrong. They wouldn't have made that movie. The movie was made because of the female empowerment. Right. But you understand could, where we are no, in 2017 right now. But, but why wouldn't he at the end have said to his wife, like, I did this just to pay off my debts. Like, I, I you know, I had all these gambling debts. I think I paid it off, honey. But now I'm in the clear. Now it's you and me again. You don't because that, that would devalue that all of the empowerment. That the whole the whip, point is right. she won four right. women. She beat Correct. this guy who's being a pig. And even though he's in on the joke, it's still good that he lost because he's a gambling addict and he's not really a good guy. All right. <laughs> There's no doubt they're stretching the truth. They're taking it what they want or don't want. And I get it. It's not a documentary. You don't have to make it factually based. I was just curious as I was watching it. But, yes, listen, Hidden Figures crowd, you'll love it. I'll give it to me, beliefs. It was fine. It passed the time. One more for you. I'll make it quick. It's called Earth One Amazing Day. It's a beautiful tribute to this wonderful land we live in. If you are an environmentalist, if you love nature, if you just love animals, I mean, this is a great film to watch. I was sent to screener by our friend Ryan Bender who's great, always hooks me up. Robert Redford narrates it, and it's awesome. I mean, there's, there's just, it's just gorgeously shot. Uh, it's done by BBC Films. 
Um, so hopefully you can find it. I don't know if it's going to be playing in theaters necessarily, but hopefully you can find it on your streaming devices or Netflix or VOD or something like that. But it's just beautiful. It's 90 minutes. Remind me a little bit uh, of that great film, Winged Migration, that documentary. It was so beautifully shot with that wonderful music. This time you got Redford narrating. You got uh, I mean, the stories about bears. You got fish. You got penguins. You got them all in their, in their habitats. And it's really well done and a great family film as well. So check out Earth One Amazing Day. I'm giving that three maple leaves. That is the bright side of life. Now we turn towards the dark side as Scott Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter will join us now to talk about this guy, Harvey Weinstein, who is quite a monster. <laughs> we'll get into your journey and just how life is taking you to this point, but let, let's start with the um, all this just grotesque stuff coming out about Harvey Weinstein. Listen, I read down in Dirty Pictures, Scott. I'm well aware of the fact he's always been a boor and an ogre and berates people and yells, but obviously I had no idea the level of the sexual harassment. I'm sure many people are feeling like George Clooney. Yeah, we know Harvey's a dog. Yeah, we know he hits on young girls, but I had no idea this was happening. I can't think of a more horrifying story than the fact he cornered a woman, uh, you know, starts masturbating, ejaculates into a, a, a potted plant. I mean, it's just, it's it's horrifying. And now the rape and more and more women are coming out, Angelina Jolie, Rose McGowan, the rest of it. What has your reaction been to how this story has just exploded? You know, I, I, I think you nailed it in, in citing the George Clooney reaction, because I think that uh, that really is the way that I have experienced this in the sense that, you know, everyone knew Harvey was sort of a bully and a jerk and whatever, but he was making great movies. And, and the thing that uh, what, what none of us had any reason to, I, I won't say no, I'm going to speak for myself. I knew him. I interviewed him many times. I saw him a, a zillion, you know, my whole beat is awards, which was his specialty. So I saw him everywhere and I never in my life saw any of this. Uh, in person or really heard anything about it until the Bill Cosby uh, situation came to a head a few years ago. And then we started to meet and say, is there anything like this going on in our backyard? And that's the first time that a few people mentioned, you know, we've heard things about Harvey Weinstein and Rose McGowan's been making sort of uh, uh, insinuations without naming him, because I think that would have jeopardized her uh, in a few different ways. So, you know, we then started looking into this, I would say two or three years ago. And I will tell you that we, we weren't the ones that ended up getting it up first, but what's, what's bothered me is there have been a lot of people that have, who have suggested that Hollywood knew about this and it was this open secret and everybody just covered it up because we loved Harvey so much. And I can tell you that nothing was further from the truth. We had to interact with him. He was a very central figure in the community but as as this all started to kind of come to the service, and, and, you know, I still never had any idea it was of this magnitude, but over the last couple of years, when we were getting wind of the fact that there were situations like this, we were very aggressively looking into this, and really, at, 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 not to uh, ask anyone to feel sorry for us, but it was at, at quite a bit of risk to our own livelihoods, because this guy was extremely powerful when he was in power. And so it's just been a little upsetting, uh, obviously, first and foremost, to, it's been very upsetting to hear about what he subjected women to. Um, but it's also been, I think, I, I want to take this opportunity to just set the record straight that this was not something that, you know, either people, everyone, you know, actually, you know, everyone in Hollywood knew about this and just didn't care um, or that nobody was working on. There were a lot of uh, investigations, especially in the last couple of years that were, you know, it's just very hard to publish something when you don't have somebody to go on the record. And finally, that was the breakthrough that the New York Times was able to uh, overcome. 
It's a great point you make, Scott, because you're getting some conservative commentators who are now saying, all right, so all you Hollywood liberals took shots at, at Donald Trump for his comments and about uh, Bill O'Reilly and, and Roger Ailes, but now somebody who has given a ton of money towards uh, Democratic causes, who supported President Obama and Hillary Clinton, et cetera, right. okay, now it's one of your own. So you, you're right, it becomes frustrating because you go, listen, we weren't protecting him. It's just nobody knew it was to this extent at all. Right. I wish you could have seen the bulletin boards and charts and magnitude of of the investigation that that we were doing and i know it was happening at several other outlets i'll leave it to them to to you know share that but it's just a very tough thing because without somebody on the record you can be sued out of business and that doesn't help you and it doesn't help the situation because he's still there and so it was really a situation sort of you know i kept thinking about uh, the wire, you know, if you come at the king, you best not miss. <laughs> yes. And we didn't want to miss. And it doesn't mean that we weren't working very hard to get to a, the finish line, but it, it just, you know, you, you've got to do it right. That story about Gwyneth Paltrow was particularly terrifying because imagine, right, you're a young actress. You know how big Harvey is. You got this right. role in Emma. He comes on you a little bit. Let's go for massages. You say no. You're horrified. You tell Brad Pitt right. who you're dating. Pitt tells Weinstein, hey, knock it off. Weinstein right. then calls Paltrow, berates her, yells at her, and she's thinking, I'm going to lose my job. Just imagine like the, the, the intimidation tactics and the fear. I mean, this is just horrific behavior, right? When you really imagine what must have been going through these young actresses' oh, minds. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, he, and, and, and he, you know, this is a guy who was unlike anyone else really in Hollywood in the sense that he, he, he at least today, uh, you know, he, he was much more like the old moguls that used to run the business at a time when this kind of behavior was not bothersome to people. I mean, he, the, you know, the casting couch era, you, there, the stories are, are infinite about the mayors and cones and, and people of that era and the things that they subject people to. Some of those women are still alive and, and, and are beginning to talk more about it now. But uh, obviously, you know, the times have, have, Changed, thank God, and unfortunately, some people didn't get the memo. And uh, you know, and and this is just an unbelievably extreme example. I mean, the it's shocking. Most of all, I think, in in the sense that, like with Cosby, you just can't believe that you were out amongst so many people who were affected by this, and yet it's just. I mean, it speaks to the the level of power that he possessed and fear that he um, kind of gave off to people because, you know, for this many people to stay quiet for this long and then to have it all come flooding out right now, it's 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 just unbelievable. You mentioned the fact stories keep coming. Just now on my phone, I got an update from The Hollywood Reporter saying Cara Delevingne is now detailing <laughs> yep. her record. So, I mean, everyone's yep. He's now going to be... And I'll tell you what, it's more coming. There's more coming. Apparently he's going to go to Europe, sex addiction uh, rehab clinic there. He thinks he can somehow get back in the game. Do you, I, I, this feels like this is irreparable. Not in a million years. I mean, this is... It, Roman Polanski did a horrible thing to one person and you can't be associated with him anymore. Uh, you know, he's just, it's, it's a, obviously a different situation. Woody Allen, it, it's not even a hundred percent established whether or not he did what he's accused of. And there are a lot of people that won't be associated with him. Um, you know, there, this is going to be like Bill Cosby level uh, pariah status. And I think that, you know, he may, find that he wants to stay in Europe because at least he won't run into as many people that he knows and, you know, can maybe live some sort of a quiet life. But it's it's just, you know, in the grand scheme of Hollywood history, there are a few people who have had more influence over the business and more, uh, you know, had more of an impact just over the last 30 years. He totally changed the game and 
And to have him in a period of a week, it's not even been a week since that New York Times, the initial article came out, to have him out of a job, out of the country, out of a marriage, out of polite society, I, I think, you know, forever. I don't see how he can possibly in any way come back from this. It's just an unbelievable turn of events. You're right, because it's horrific. We had Garth Davis, the director of Lion On, last year, yeah. and I asked him about Harvey, and he goes, you know, he really does love film. Like, he goes, watching right. the movie, he said it was like The Bicycle Thief, and I, he loves Desica and, you know, Fellini's old movies. The fact he got Gangs of New York made with Marty, the way he championed Tarantino, and all that, you're right, it's extinguished now because of this uh, irreparable behavior. It really is. Astonishing. Well, you know, the, to bring a sports parallel in here, I mean, it would be very interesting how history judges him because, you know, this is, this is a... Uh, obviously in, in a, a very different and a much more extreme version of the Pete Rose situation. I mean, you cannot, this, you cannot deny that this guy is responsible for an unbelievable contribution to the art of movies where there's no Tarantino without him. He'd, he'd still be in a video store. Judy Dench would have never, you know, really had a film career. Neither would Kate Winslet. Ben and Matt would still be in Boston potentially. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And then five best pictures. He had a tremendous, uh, impact and, and unbelievable achievements as a producer and a distributor. But, you know, he, he's clearly a repugnant <clears throat> person. And so I, I, and we knew that he was a bully, which was not accept, not a good thing at all and not really acceptable, but this is like, this is at a different level. And so now, you know, if there were an equivalent of the, you know, movie hall of fame, I don't, I, I don't know how you, how you, uh, adjudicate somebody like this. No, you're right. Pete Rose is a great example. You'll still get some vigilant defenders, but it's, it's too difficult to exonerate all the other stuff. We're talking with Scott Forberg right. of The Hollywood Reporter. Awards Chatter is his podcast. I just saw Blade Runner 2049, Scott, and I'm just, I mean, I've always said this, but I'm still amazed. Since you cover the awards beat, can you please tell me, hopefully you can get him, how is Roger Deakins never won an Oscar? This guy's the greatest cinematographer ever, and I see he's the heavy favorite to win this year. Please make it happen. Well, he's incredible, but here's the problem that he keeps running into. And people, you know, I, I totally agree with you that it's, un, it's, it's unfathomable that somebody with that much talent and so many great credits, all the Coen Brothers movies, so many others, right. uh, you know, that he has not won. Uh, and he's got over a dozen nominations. It's just, but here's the bottom line. The voting system of the Academy Awards is what's doing him in because the, the way it works is that there are a bunch of different branches of the Academy. So meaning there's the actors, there's the cinematographers, there's the makeup artists and hairstylists and on and on and on. And each branch picks the nominees for their own area. So in the case of cinematographers, the, the cinematographers in the Academy pick the nominees. That's why he gets nominated so many times because they know what he's doing is great. But then for some reason that the Academy has never been able to really explain to me, and I think it's ridiculous, the second round of voting not just for best picture, but for all categories, opens up to all the branches. And so what ends up happening is cinematographers that are, you know, fewer than 10% of the whole Academy, which means that 90 plus percent of the Academy who's voting on that award for best cinematography don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> and so what they tend to do is gravitate towards the nominee in that category that they like the most overall as a movie. And so, again, this year, he'll probably be nominated for Blade Runner 2049, and as he should be. But he will then probably lose to a movie like The Shape of Water or something else that is going to be a much more overall uh, popular movie with the Academy because that's, you know, it's just genre movies are less there. 
their cup of tea. And I, I, you know, Shape of Water is another one that's sort of genre, but I mean, there's no way that you get the full Academy. I, I, I would be very surprised uh, if they went for it. Now, the other problem for Roger Deakins is that on the ballot, the only time you actually see the name of individuals as opposed to the movie that they worked on is in the acting categories and I believe direction. And, and so otherwise what happens when you see best cinematography on the, on the final ballot is it just says Blade Runner 2049. Now that should be enough because it is such a beautiful movie. You would think they'd vote for that, but because you don't see Roger Deakins name next to it, a lot of people forget it's him. And again, they just go to the movie they like the most, which probably is not going to be this two hour, 45 minute, you know, pretty good, but not great movie. So that's the problem for Roger. It's unbelievable. I love the way you explain that because now that does now make sense to me how these these things keep <laughs> happening. I get so frustrated. Right. Is Christopher Nolan finally going to win an Oscar for Dunkirk? If the Oscars were today, he would win. Um, but, you know, the problem for him is that his movie came out in the summer and that's a long, you know, six, seven months before the full before the uh, eligibility period ends and, and people get to start voting for nominations and then later wins. I think that you know, what's incredible is he's never even been nominated for Best Director. He's going to be nominated this year for Best Director or at the beginning of 2018 when those come out. But I And I think he has an excellent chance of winning because I've now seen most of the field of what's, what's going to be coming down the road. There's a few movies that we haven't yet seen, like The Post, which is Spielberg's movie with Hanks and Meryl Streep about the Pentagon Papers, so you can never count something like that out. But right now... I think it's probably between Nolan and the director of The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro. Those two just had massive, uh, you know, massive undertakings with their movies this year and, and did an incredible job. Yeah, the trailer alone for Shape of Water. You know what, del Toro, obviously the director of Pan's Labyrinth, he's going to yeah. be risky and take chances and do something different. What's the movie you've enjoyed most? Maybe you saw it at TIFF or you saw a screener that hasn't come out yet that you're most yeah. excited for. Well, I'll tell you, the good news is it's a movie that opened just this past Friday, and I really encourage you and your listeners to check it out as soon as possible because it's not an obvious box office, you know, draw because there's only the only name in the cast who anyone's ever heard of is Willem Dafoe, but oh, it is Florida called Project. The Florida Project, and it is unbelievable. I, I It's hands down my favorite of 2017 so far, uh, and I've seen a good amount, as I say, of what's still to come, so I, it's going to take a really great movie to beat it. The way I've described it is it's sort of like, an American slumdog millionaire where it's primarily children who are in a bleak situation. In this case, it's not India, but it's the, the sort of, uh, I guess you could say like poor motel, you know, uh, areas around Disney world in Florida and how, you know, they're in this bleak situation, but they're kids. They don't know that they're hard up. They, they are um, going about their lives and it's just, they got unbelievable children, uh, child actors, and it's a beautiful story. And I did not expect at all, you know, going in, I was kind of reluctant to even see it. And it's awesome. Wow. That is a great endorsement. I knew Defoe was in it. I heard that he's going to get nominated for supporting actor, yeah. but I didn't hear much else about it. So uh, I love well, that endorsement. I, please let me know if you, you know, if I'm off base, I want to hear from you, but I think <laughs> you're going to like it. <laughs> I'm shooting me right on point. We're talking with Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter, Awards Chatters' podcast. I love your podcast because it gives Thank me. You. 
It gives me the prep I need when my guys come here. So I listened to, to I listened to Miles Teller, your interview with him before Miles came to ESPN. So when we're bantering, I go, hey, uh, how about that car accident? Because you'd ask him about this horrific yes. incident. And my producer, yes. Dan's like, hey, save it for the air. Come on, what are you doing? But you, you really, how do you go about getting all your research done? Because you get great stuff from Miles. Your Billy Bob Thornton was wonderful because. Oh, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Because, you know, these, as you know from your podcast, these yeah. things take a lot of work. And so when. Uh, you know, and it, it's not the kind of thing where you're necessarily in real time getting any kind of feedback. So it's very nice to hear that people uh, listen and enjoy it. So, I, you know, in my case, I just feel obviously you've got to have seen their most recent movie and, and a chunk of their past important work. Um, and then it's a matter of just reading everything I can find from a handful of the same sources every time. It's, you know, New York Times, LA Times, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Guardian, Times of London, Telegraph. Uh, obviously IMDb and Wikipedia, and then some of the longer form GQ, uh, Esquire, anytime they've been profiled. And you just want to know the subject matter so well before you sit down with them. And you certainly, in my case, I, I script out questions, but you, if you're that conversant already with their, with their story, then you're able to sort of dance around and improvise in the moment because, you know, the biggest thing is if they see that you've taken the time and care to do that prep in advance, then they're going to go deeper because they realize, first of all, they appreciate it. And secondly, they realize they don't have to just cover the surface stuff because you've already addressed that in your question. So you actually get, I think, deeper material. It's all pretty, you know, this is not a, a revolutionary idea, uh, but it's just, you know, if you put in the time, I think they they respond to it. It's a fabulous answer, but I'm fixing it on one aspect. Wikipedia? Because I, <laughs> well, I, I, I used to, I, I got burned on with Jessica Alba. I read something on Wikipedia. She's like, what? I go, oh, yeah, was on my Wikipedia? I, I, I said, oh, God. You're right. It's happened. It's happened. I mean, I, I the funniest one was, it wasn't on the podcast, but it was when I was starting out doing this stuff. Uh, you know, I think it was like 2005, the year Amy Adams was breaking through. Nobody knew who she was. She had just done Junebug. And I went on Wikipedia, and it said, you know, uh, I think I think it said her real name was Amanda Jessica Adams. So I think the first question I said was, so I understand your real name is not Amy Adams. How did you get to this uh, point? And there was this awkward silence. She said, I don't know what you mean. I, I, as far as I know, my real name is Amy Adams. So, you know, you've got to be very careful with Wikipedia. But it can also, you know, where there are cited sources, um, it can be of some value. Um, that's very funny. We can all relate to those cringe-inducing moments. How great was Kamel Nanjiani? I hope the big sick at least gets nominated for uh, for screenplay because he was fabulous. How how great did you find him? Oh, he's terrific. He's uh, you know, for a lot of years I'd I'd seen him as the guy in Silicon Valley, and I thought it was very funny. But he only had you know his whatever one fifth of the whole time to shine, and so it, to then see this guy have a, a full movie that he brought to life as a as an opportunity now to to tell this very personal story and to to start in it it was it was just tremendous and so i was excited to talk to him and he, he has this incredible personal story part of which is dealt with in the movie but a lot of it isn't and and i i think he's got a very bright future favorite interviews i know it's really tough i, I love when you had like <laughs> peter bogdanovich you know you had uh, carl reiner like the legends i think are amazing <laughs> Billy Bob, no matter what, is always good because he's so funny and he's so forthright. I thought your Leno interview was fabulous because I was always oh, a Letterman guy, you. but you did a great job with Jay because you had those nuggets. And I have, people have to listen to the whole thing, but this was the best part of it is when <laughs> Leno said to you, the reason why the Larry Sanders show, which I adored, 
is the greatest show right. of all time. Leno was trying to give back to his crew. So he said, the year that you're with me, you'll get a thousand bucks every year. <laughs> and he said, just like a Larry Sanders episode, he announced it to the crew. Uh, not, yeah, Jake, I talked to you. He's like, yeah, I know it says uh, that I started in 2008, but I actually started in 98. I was interning. He's like, oh, so you want an extra thousand? Right. Like, okay, next person. Hey, Jay, I know it started in 2008. Because this is why you can't do this. Exactly. You can't look you after the, the insanity, yeah. But, but Leno's a guy who I think has always been kind of misrepresented. Like, people view him, like, you know, obviously the Conan stuff, and he stabbed him in the back, and that's how people view it. But I think you were got to the crux of it, which is people that worked with Leno adore him. They, they, they swear by him. And as he said to you, normally when you get pushed out, it's your own people that do it. But that wasn't the right. case for Jay. No, I think, well, I appreciate you listening to that one so closely. And I agree with you that he... I looked at him very differently after that conversation. I think that the, the thing there is that I don't know. Maybe he just he has, it sounds like his his general approach is to not engage in, um, you know, in stats as they come up. But the problem then is that the people who go unanswered, that becomes the sort of understood record of what happened. And I, you know, only he and these other people, Letterman and Conan, know for sure what transpired between them. But I think with the with the Letterman situation, you know, he makes a great point. He said, I was the I was the regular backup host for Johnny Carson for whatever, five years before Carson finally stepped down. Now, if Carson preferred Letterman, you know, that's a little hurtful to me or whatever, but the reality, it's not that shocking that they would go to the guy who they've seen do that for five years and who's been waiting in line. Then, you know, there's no, where was the stabbing in the back basically? Yeah. Letterman was the one who idolized Carson even more, but that's not, there's no birthright to assuming that job. And then with Conan, what Letterman or what Leno's saying is, I you know, I was number one in the ratings. I'm doing great, and they come and just tell me one day, all right. So at this date in whatever five years from now, you're going to be out, and uh, we're going to bring Conan in. And there was no discussion about it or whatever. He says that's what I was told, and you know, it doesn't make he didn't make a huge think about it, but I don't think he was necessarily very much on board. And but he go he went along with it, and Conan replaces him, and he. You know, then it, but he at that time, five years later, he's still number one. He's still enjoying doing the work. And I think that NBC realized we're going to lose this guy to another network. He's going to become our competitor who starts beating us. So they offer him this primetime gig. And from his point of view, he says, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I don't want to go to war with NBC here. I don't see how it's ever worked for, you know, somebody doing this kind of a show in that early in the evening, but we'll give it a try. And he did. And it didn't go well for him, but it was really not going well for Conan after him. And he's saying, Conan, blame me. But you know what? Every late night show has kind of a weaker lead in. It's just the nature of, you know, people are not in that mindset yet. So, you know, Conan wants to blame me for, for, you know, the reason why his show wasn't doing well. But it was ultimately NBC who looked at the situation and said, you know, Conan's not working here and we've still got Jay. Let's, let's not you know, go down on principle. So I, I don't see myself any evidence of where Jay specifically was stabbing people in the back. It sounds like the guys that he pissed off just happened to be more outspoken about their positions. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong if, if those other guys would like to come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a well said. Open invitation. Um, last one for you, because I could keep you for hours, but I adore Scorsese. My producer loves Denzel and Leo DiCaprio. So dealer's choice. You can tell a story either about Marty, Denzel, or Leo. Whatever you want, Scott. <laughs> okay, let's see. Well, I'll tell you a little thing about Leo, and I'm, I'm, uh, it's not going to help my 
my relationship with him, but whatever, uh, to whatever extent that exists, uh, <laughs> he was supposed to come on the podcast. He had committed to do it for the Revenant. And at a certain point, uh, I think, you know, realized that he was winning this thing if he just stayed at home and, and went to sleep all day. And so he <laughs> he's one of the very few people who've ever agreed to do this and then screwed me over uh, by not doing it, which I was not happy about because, you know, especially when you go and tell your boss and others that, hey, Leo's coming on, this is great. And this was in the early days of the podcast. It was a huge thing. We hadn't yet had the, the you know, sort of bigger names that have happened since. And so it was a pretty devastating thing at the time. But again, I hope he'll come back on because he's a terrific actor. And, um, you know, now, though, he's got his Oscar, so I don't know if he cares about getting another one. We'll have to see. <laughs> They're all playing the game, Scott. When I got yeah. something from bro, hey, I got in the bag. Sorry, not interested, unavailable. Uh, yeah, um, right. Awards Chatter is the podcast, The Hollywood Reporter, hollywoodreporter.com. You can find Scott Feinberg's great work, or you can subscribe as I do. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This. I really appreciate it. Actor Showcase. So shout out to Gina, who listens to Cinephile. She said, I want to hear about Robert Redford, so why not? Redford, an iconic figure. Speaking of Harvey Weinstein, I, there's a book I read called Down and Dirty Pictures. And it focuses on not only Harvey Weinstein, but also um, Robert Redford. And it's, I'm going to go back and read a little bit. It's by Peter Biskind, who's a really famous writer. And it's called Down and Dirty Pictures, Miramax, Sundance, and the Rise of Independent Film. Now, Weinstein, unsurprisingly, comes across as this, I mean, not the sexual harassment stuff, but a complete bore and just a bully and uh, arrogant and yelling and shouting and berating people. But somebody who loves films and, and really appreciates great quality movies, um, and obviously champion people like Tarantino and so many others with independent films. It also focuses on Redford uh, and the rise of Sundance. Now, Redford doesn't come across that poorly. He comes across a little bit as aloof. You know, he's kind of just built this uh, giant tribute to independent film there at, in, uh, in in Utah, and now it's become more commercialized, and he's kind of distanced himself. But I think he's done an enormous tribute towards film. So I just want to get that out of the way. When it comes to Robert Redford's best movies, and we're not focusing on the directorial stuff he's done, because Quiz Show's a movie I love, and you should all watch if you haven't seen it, with John Turturro and Ray Fiennes and uh, Rob Morrow. But beyond his acting, which is notable, he's done a real service to film, I think, with Sundance. I just want to get that out of the way. Number five is Downhill Racer. It's the best movie I've ever seen about skiing. I saw it about five years ago. I'd heard about it, and um, a friend of mine recommended it to me, so I bought it. So it's uh, directed by Michael Ritchie, and it still holds up. It's made, like I think, in 1969. A lot of great POV shots of him skiing, but he plays this arrogant skier, you know, this golden boy American, and it was really an important film, I think, in Redford's career because it showed that, you know, along with being this you know, wonderfully handsome guy and the blonde hair and the big smile and all the rest of it, that he could have a dark side and could play a bit of a villain. And in Downhill Racer, he plays this... This guy who's this, you know, skiing genius who's just not a very pleasant person. There's this one scene I, I can't forget. He's arguing with his girlfriend. And rather than respond because he's so frustrated with her because she's upset, he just honks the horn. He, I'll never forget it. He's like, Argh! and just honks the horn for like 10 seconds. He's just so enraged. I'll never forget that scene. Downhill Racer for the POVs and Redford honking a horn. Best movie ever about skiing. Number five is Downhill Racer. Number four is a natural, of course, very memorable movie. The book is much better. Dan is a bibliophile. I don't know if he's read the Bernard Malamud book, but it's brilliant. And it's much darker, and it's a completely different ending. I'll never forget one of the last lines is, he walked down the stairs choking back his own self-loathing. Like, <laughs> you, you don't forget stuff like that. It's so powerfully written. Of course, the movie glosses it up, and he hits a home run, and you know, you get 
showers coming from the uh, from the lights, but that's okay. It's a movie. If these things happen, he was he was wonderful in the movie. And if you're a baseball fan, you can appreciate how sentimental it is. Number three, speaking of people who never got their due, Robert Redford's never won an acting Oscar. Like this is insane. He's never won an acting Oscar, and he should have won for number three. Of course, he won an Oscar for Ordinary People, directing when he beat Marty for Raging Bull. But acting, how the hell has he never won an Oscar? He should have won for number three, which is a movie called All is Lost. He utters maybe 15 words in the entire movie. There's a couple lines of narration at the start, and then that's it. He's a man. It's very Hemingway-esque. He's a man alone at sea, and he's fighting the elements. And I don't know many people that could carry a movie like Robert Redford could. Close-ups of him just, you know, battling loneliness, uh, reading a book, using his lighter, cooking for himself, beans, etc. You know, just a man at sea, alone with his emotions. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose. J.C. Chandor directed it. This is really impressive because he did a movie called Margin Call, which has a ton of dialogue. There's just a, just a torrent of dialogue. And then, you know, he makes this movie where there's an, a complete absence of dialogue. I'm always impressed when directors can just go com- completely against uh, task and try something different. That movie had uh, Kevin Spacey and uh, Paul Bettany in it. So... Uh, All is Lost is beautifully shot, a wonderful movie. Mark Simon's a fan of it as well, uh, so make sure you check out that. That's number three, Redford at his most pure acting. Number two, All the President's Men. You could call it Spotlight before Spotlight, crusading investigative journalist, wonderful chemistry between him and Dustin Hoffman playing Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, Jason Robards won an Oscar as their editor. Excellent newspaper film. And number one is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You think, can't think about Robert Redford without thinking about his relationship with Paul Newman, Close friends, both on and off screen. Wonderful chemistry. I feel like this is like embarrassing that I'm not including the Sting. So I wish I could include both, but I like Butch Cassidy more, and I feel like people know the Sting at one Best Picture. So this this is a rather glaring omission that I'm not putting the Sting on there. Gina's going to be upset, but I'm doing it because I only have one of theirs together. So that's why I'm putting Butch Cassidy one. Dan Zapol. Yeah. Not only has he never won an Oscar, he's only been nominated once right. as an actor, and it was for The Sting, right. which you didn't have in the top five, but somehow we have Downhill Racer <laughs> Downhill Racer's un- best movie okay. ever skiing. Yeah. Um, other notables that you left out, some of his recent work that I like, uh, including Spy Game with Brad Pitt. I knew you'd like it. How good is that movie, <laughs> it's though? Good. It, Tony Scott directed it. It's a really entertaining movie. I do Love it. it. Uh, the Last Castle? Yeah, him and Gandolfini. Yeah. Never saw it. I remember I make mixed reviews. I was like, eh. maybe I'll watch it. If He's you think in it's prison. good, I'll watch it. Yeah, prison movie. Yeah, yeah. Gandolfini's. I remember I want, okay. for the, for him and Gandolfini. I wanted to see it, but um, I watched this movie. Didn't like it, but uh, him and a young Meryl Streep in Out of Africa. I've actually never seen Out of Africa. You won't like it. Yeah, um, I, but it's, it's, much it, like that Bar- got the movie got nominated for Best Picture, which is right. why I saw it. It's not worth it. Much like uh, Barry Lyndon on my list. It's one of those movies that I feel yeah. like I should watch, but I don't think I'd enjoy it whatsoever. And then two more sneakers. Indeed, yeah, sneakers. Very entertaining. Honorable mention. I do think great okay. cast. Sneakers is great. Uh, a very entertaining. I love Ben Kingsley in that movie. He's fabulous as the villain. But Redford, uh, Dan Aykroyd's in it. Yep. It's a really good cast. Very and funny. then finally, Phoenix is in it. Indecent proposal. proposal, which I knew you were going to bring yep. up. I'll give you $1 million to sleep with your wife. I like to watch Indecent Proposal again. Like, is it just a trash movie or is it actually a good movie? I, I, I tend to think it's the former. Like a good concept, bad movie, yeah. one of those? Yeah. I Woody know. Harrelson to be more like, like, if I ever had the time, I'd like to go. Somebody watch Indecent Proposal for me. Tweet a cinephile ESPN. Tell me, is it just a bunch of trash or is it actually a pretty good movie? Bob Redford's best, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, All is Lost, The Natural, Downhill Racer, shout-outs, of course, to The Sting, Out of Africa, Indecent Proposal, many others, and directorially, seriously, watch Quiz Show. It's a beauty. A Scorsese Story.
So Dan brought to my attention, as did my friend John Chick immediately, that Martin Scorsese wrote a grass column in The Hollywood Reporter. If you haven't seen it or read it, I encourage you to check it out, hollywoodreporter.com. Of course, you can find the great work of our friend Scott Feinberg as well. The headline, Scorsese on Rotten Tomatoes, Box Office Obsession, and Why Mother Was Misjudged. So I'll read you some quotes from it and then go from there. I guess the first headline should be the fact that he liked Mother, and uh, I obviously did not like it. So here's what Marty said about it. Before I actually saw Mother... I was extremely disturbed by all the severe judgments on it. Many people seem to want to define the film, box it, find it wanting, and condemn it. And many seem to take joy in the fact that it received an F grade from CinemaScore. This actually became a news story. Mother had been slapped with the dreaded CinemaScore F rating, a terrible distinction that it shares with pictures directed by Robert Altman, Jane Campion, William Friedkin, and Steven Soderbergh. He's absolutely right, because the problem is you hear CinemaScore and you go F, you go, oh my God, it's awful. But with CinemaScore, as I explained on Cinephile previously, what it ranks is, did the movie match your expectations of what you thought you'd watch after the trailer? Which is an F, because if you watch the trailer, you go, all right, haunting psychological thriller like Black Swan. Wait, I didn't think it'd be this commentary on religion and environmentalism. So people are upset. So he's right that if you hear F, you go, it's a failing grade. I guess I'm not going to watch this movie. Now, he explains the importance of having preview screenings and how it has been important in the past, even to his own films. He says, you know, obviously nobody likes it. When everyone's working together, test screenings can help answer some very basic questions. Was this piece of information clear enough to the audience? Was the timing right with this scene? What is throwing the audience off at that moment, and why isn't it landing? Small, extremely specific issues can be clarified. So Marty's not patronizing the audience. He's just saying, cinema score, he doesn't care for that particular term. Now, as far as positive and negative reviews, he said, I've gotten positive reviews. I've gotten some negative reviews. And even the ones that have been negative are generally given in a thoughtful manner. But over the past 20 years, many things have changed in cinema. Those changes have occurred at every level from the way movies are made to the way they're seen and discussed. Many of these changes have had an upside and a downside. He likes digital technology, but misses the fact you don't see as many 35 millimeter in, in screens. So now he goes to the box offices and online aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes, which have absolutely nothing to do with real film criticism. They rate a picture in the way you'd rate a horse at the racetrack, a, a restaurant in a Zagat's Guide, or a household appliance in Consumer Reports. They have everything to do with the movie business and absolutely nothing to do with either the creation or the intelligent viewing of film. The filmmaker is reduced to a content manufacturer and the viewer to an unadventurous consumer. In a vacuum, he's right. If someone just says to you, and by the way, Mother got a positive rating, so Marty's wrong. The critic, I mean, according to Rotten Tomatoes, it got a positive review. 60% or above is positive. Mother got a 68%. He's right that you shouldn't just bandy about Blade Runner 2049 got an 88%. Let's go see it. Does that mean the decline of, of film criticism? Of course. He's talking about real serious people who love film, Pauline Kael, Roger Ebert, Andrew Saris, et cetera, who would give you like a, you know, a 10-page review, and that's really what you should watch. But where he's wrong is this. Yeah, it's a number. Okay, when I go to my Flickster app, I check the number fine, but I can then click on the reviews. And all those, there's hundreds of reviews. You then click on it, and it is there in long form, these beautiful reviews given. So... It's always, if, the, if Rotten Tomatoes was literally just numerical numbers, if it was like, you know, baseball, we just gave a number, okay, they're hitting 300, that's what this is, that's fine. But that's just the precursor. As Matt actually explained to us in Cinephile, if you want more, you can get more. So if Marty wants serious film criticism, he can read Owen Gleiber of Variety, Ty Burr of the Boston Globe, Anne Horton of the Washington Post, among the critics I enjoy who are very smart, very passionate, been around for a long time. So I completely disagree with this criticism of Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think that's fair. Um, here's where he thinks about mothers, so the actual, which I think is very fascinating. He doesn't actually endorse it. He does not say this is a great film. This is one of the best movies of the year. This is why I loved it. He just instead focuses on things I think he'd appreciate. As my friend John said, well, he's an auteur. Like, you, you would know Marty would like this kind of movie. And as I said in my review, I do appreciate the fact. That's why I give it one and a half. I should have given it no, no Maple Leafs, but I said one and a half because it's audacious and it's different. I'll take ten mothers versus ten Pirates of the Caribbean five. At least Aronofsky was trying something different. Absolutely. 
But here's what Marty says. Is it a picture that has to be explained? What about the experience of watching Mother? It was so tactile, so beautifully staged and acted. The subjective camera and the POV reverse angles always in motion. Like only Marty's going to be talking about the reverse POV angles. Like everyone's like, what? The sound design, which comes to the viewer from around corners and leaves you deeper and deeper into the nightmare. The unfolding of the story, which gradually becomes more upsetting. The horror, the dark comedy, the biblical elements, the cautionary fable, they're all there, but they're elements in the total experience which engulfs the characters and the viewing along with them. Only a true, passionate filmmaker could have made this picture, which I'm still experiencing weeks after I saw it. I myself am still experiencing it as well, but not in quite the pleasant form that Marty's describing. I'm still revolted by the image of a baby eating. So it's unsurprising that Marty would support it because a true artist would want to see films that are different, and I appreciate the fact that he's, he's seeing things in there, like sound design, He's a billion times smarter than me that he's seeing the way it's crafted and it's well done. That doesn't mean it's a good movie. But I, I appreciate the fact he's saying, listen, let's not just disparage these films and try to reduce them to a number when they don't do well. It's a huge box office bomb. It's not going to get any nominations. And people that didn't like it really hated it. And he also, this is his best point he makes, is that anyone familiar with the history of movies knows all too well there's a very long list of titles. The Wizard of Oz, It's a Wonderful Life, Vertigo, and Point Blank, to name just a few, that were rejected on first release and went on to become classics. Tomato Mater readings and cinema score grades will be gone soon enough. I don't agree with them on that. Maybe they'll be muscled out by something even worse. Or maybe they'll fade away and dissolve in the light of a new spirit in film literacy. Meanwhile, passionately crafted pictures like Mother will continue to grow in our minds. So, again, I credit him for looking out for another filmmaker in Aronofsky who really has been uh, cut up with people who didn't like him, but I think he's way off base in the criticism of Rotten Tomatoes. Atchity's now gone. Matt Atchity's now doing something else. So, I actually wanted to try to get him on the pod and get him to respond to Marty's comments. But I, I looked up, he's, he's working somewhere else now, so I don't know if we can make a connection to Rotten Tomatoes, get them to respond to Marty's comments, because I can just imagine, if I'm the Rotten Tomatoes editor-in-chief, I'm like, all right, last time I checked, Marty, silence wasn't exactly met with resounding approval. We still gave you, like, an 85% Rotten Tomato. Hey, the next, hey, the Irishman, you know what, maybe that feels like a 55%, okay, Marty? See how you like that number, then. Uh, I kid. But that's Scorsese's view. Once again, check it out, HollywoodReporter.com. Nobody can ever deny how passionate he is about film. I'm Adnan Verk. Thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.